our speaker this morning we heard about right here in chapel when Dr. Roberta Heston, as the president of Eastern College, was here as one of our lecturers, a Staley lecturer, she mentioned our speaker and his life, Mr. Brian Stevenson. She mentioned him because he was an alum of Eastern College and she was very proud of the work he was doing in civil rights and in working with the poor. And when I heard the story that she told about one of his clients and, and uh, the family member of one of his clients, uh, I was deeply moved and impressed, as was Dean Higa, and we both uh, said to one another that uh, this would be the type of person we would love to have here. We had invited Mr. Stevenson for a two-day uh, time, but uh, his work has not allowed him to stay for that long. Mr. Stevenson graduated magna cum laude from Eastern College in St. David's, Pennsylvania. He was a presidential scholar there. And he was admitted to the Harvard Law School where he earned his Juris Doctorate and was awarded the Harvard Fellowship in Public Interest Law. He simultaneously earned a degree in public policy from the Harvard School of Government in 1985 where he was awarded the Kennedy Fellowship in Criminal Justice. And since that time, he's been a civil rights attorney in the Deep South advocating for the rights of poor people and minorities through his representation of death row prisoners. He was a staff attorney with the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta, Georgia, for five years before becoming the executive director of the Alabama Capital Representation Resource Center. And he's now the director of the Equal Justice Initiative of Alabama. He's worked um, primarily with death row inmates. And because of his work with death row inmates, who in the Alabama system are very poorly represented, as is the case in many states, he does this out of his commitment for Christ. As is obvious from his educational background, uh, he could have taken much more lucrative positions. There's not big money in representing death row inmates in Alabama. And so they formed a nonprofit organization that does this for justice. And Brian himself does this out of his love and commitment to Jesus Christ. In 1989, he received the Reebok National Human Rights Award along with the Chinese students at the Tiananmen Square Massacre. And he's received many other honors for his work. He's been highlighted on 60 Minutes and the McNeil Lair News Hour, as well as the Jesse Jackson uh, program. He's well known around the country, but still the image of one of his clients' family members standing up to police dogs to testify. A, a small woman who was afraid of dogs all her life, as I remember this, the, the concept, the story as Dr. Heston has shared, has struck at my heart for what he's trying to do in the name of Christ. Let's welcome Mr. Brian Stevenson. Thank you. I feel uh, quite honored and blessed to be here this morning. Uh, it's great for me to be uh, at your college. It reminds me so much of Eastern College. I feel like I'm back home. I also want to thank uh, Diane for that wonderful uh, music. It very, very much blessed me. I, I wanted to share with, with you this morning about struggle. 
and about your identity in struggle. When I was a college student, uh, like many of you, I really didn't have a clue uh, what I was going to do when I graduated. And I'm sure that's not true for anybody in this auditorium. But for me, I, I went through college interested in a lot of things and not really focused on any one particular thing. I was a philosophy major. And it was only at the end of my junior year that I realized nobody was going to hire me to philosophize when I graduated from Eastern. And I had to start thinking about what would come next. And I really went to law school because it was the only professional uh, program I could identify that didn't require you to know anything. Uh, you know, when you graduate from college, uh, you can take the LSATs, and let me assure you, you don't have to know anything about any particular sub subject matter. You just, you know, take the test, and if you can get in, when you get to law school, no one will expect you to have mastered some subject. And that appealed to me, and I went about this uh, <laughs> process of, of studying law and quickly became very disappointed in what I saw happening around me. There was all of this uh, kind of intense uh, struggle over very esoteric ideas, and I felt disconnected from the motivations that had led me to the law school in the first place, which was to help uh, people who were in need. Uh, during my second year in school, I went to Atlanta, Georgia, and I worked with this organization called the Southern Center for Human Rights, and while there, I started this process of providing legal representation to death row prisoners. Uh, I was just a second year law student when I got to Atlanta and one of the lawyers told me I'd be going to death row the next day to meet someone and to explain to him that uh, he was not at risk of execution anytime soon. And while I was excited about the prospect of going to the row and, and, and being of help, I was also kind of intimidated. And that night I was sort of nervous, worrying about how I would be able to kind of get through this. But I sort of steeled myself and came to work the next day, asked the director who was going to be going with me, which attorney would accompany me on this trip. And at that point he revealed that no one would be going with me. I'd be going by myself and that this was something that they expected me to do alone. Uh, well, that really did add to my anxiety. I, I got in my car, I drove down to death row. And I met this uh, man who came out and I began explaining to him what had been explained to me, uh, which was that he was not at risk of execution at any time in the next several months, that we were still working on trying to find him a lawyer, uh, and that we didn't want him to worry about what was happening just now. Uh, as I gave him this information and as I sat there with him, before he said anything, he started to cry. And the tears started rolling down his face and, and, and finally he composed himself and he began thanking me for giving him this news. And he began explaining to me how he had not permitted his wife or his kids to come and visit uh, since he had been on death row and how I was the first person he had talked to in the three years he had been under sentence of death who was not a death row guard or a death row prisoner and how joyful he was to know that he now had this time and he could invite his family and children to see him. And it amazed me that by just being there and by doing this very simple task, um, it became obvious that there had been some impact on the quality of this man's life. As I drove away from the prison, it became clearer to me that sometimes by positioning ourselves to serve, we can really do things that create a hope dynamic for people who are hopeless. And it was that understanding that led me back to the South when I graduated from law school to start this process of providing services uh, to death row prisoners, to poor people, to people who live in the margins of our society. And it's really in that effort, in that struggle, if you will, that I've come to learn some things about who I am in struggle, about identity in struggle.
when I first started doing this work, there were many difficult days uh, when uh, confronting the problems that we face just seemed overwhelming. Uh, when we started our project in Alabama in 1989, there had been a lot of problems in that state. And I'd gone there to set up this new project. We, we didn't have an institution in the state of Alabama. There is no public defender system in Alabama. Poor people have a very difficult time getting legal representation, particularly uh, if they're accused of, uh, of crimes that generate a lot of attention. And so there was a high execution rate and a lot of people on death row without legal assistance. And when I first moved to Alabama, there was someone who was scheduled for execution in, in 30 days. And when I got there, uh, this man called me and he said, Mr. Stevenson, uh, I'm scheduled to be executed in 30 days. I don't have a lawyer. Will you please represent me? And I explained to him that we weren't in a situation to take any cases yet. We didn't have our books. We didn't have our computers. I didn't have any staff yet. I said, we've just opened this office. I really can't take on any cases just yet. I'm sorry. And he hung up the phone. He didn't say anything. I felt bad that we weren't able to provide him assistance. And the next day he called me back and he said, Mr. Stevenson, I know what you told me yesterday. He said, I know what you said about not having lawyers and staff and books, but I'm begging you, please represent me. He said, you don't have to tell me you can keep the state of Alabama from executing me. He said, you don't have to tell me you can stop this execution, but please tell me you'll stand with me, you'll fight for me. He said, I don't think I can make it these next 29 days if there's no hope at all. Well, I, I couldn't say no when he, when he presented it to me in that way. And I took his case and we started working very hard trying to get a stay of execution, uh, but we were unable to. And on the night that he was scheduled to be executed, the Supreme Court called me and said we, they had denied our stay motions. And I found myself driving from Montgomery, Alabama, where my office is, to Holman uh, Prison in Atmore, Alabama, and, and feeling like I was in this movie, that there was something surreal about this whole experience. And I got down to death row, and I started talking to this man. And we were 20 minutes away from the scheduled execution, and we were holding hands, and we were praying, and we were crying, and we were talking. And we had this conversation that I'll never forget. He began to explain to me how strange his day had been. And he said to me, he said, Brian, you know, it's been such a strange day because when I woke up this morning, the guards came to me, and they said, what do you want for breakfast? He said, then they came to me at lunch and they said, what do you want for lunch? And then he said, they came to me later and they said, what do you want for dinner? And he said, it's been strange because all day long, people have been asking me what they can do to help. Do you want coffee? Do you need water? Do you need access to the phone to call your friends and relatives? Do you need stamps to mail your last letters? And I never will forget him saying to me, he said, more people have asked me today what they can do to help me in these last 14 hours than I ever remember them asking in the first 19 years of my life. And with those questions resonating in my mind, I, it just became impossible for me to think, yes, where were they when you were three years old being physically abused by your stepmother? Where were they when you were six years old being sexually assaulted by your father and your uncles? Uh, where were they when you were nine years old and you were experimenting with heroin and crack cocaine? Uh, where were they when you were 14 and had run away from home and were roaming the streets of Birmingham with no place to go? I, I know where they were when you committed this offense and they were lined up to execute you, but I couldn't get these questions out of my mind, and it was difficult to then have him pulled away and executed. It was a struggle. We do a lot in our project to confront race bias in the administration of criminal justice. Uh, sadly, we see a lot of discrimination against people who are poor, uh, people who are African-American, people who are Latino in our system. And the impact of race and the impact of poverty creates a kind of despair among many of our clients that's very difficult to confront. 
I'm representing increasingly younger kids now who are being brought into the adult facility, at the adult institution, and there's this disconnection when politicians and policymakers think about these problems, a disconnection that creates real difficulty for me. Uh, in our system, we now have kids as young as 13 and 14 years old being uh, brought into the adult system. Uh, I just filed a brief not too long ago for a mentally retarded boy of 14 who's facing life imprisonment without parole. And when you work on these kinds of cases, you see the difficulties that vex our society in a whole nother way. I had a case involving a very young kid, a small young man, 14 years old, who was certified to stand trial as an adult and was placed into the adult uh, jail after the judge made the certification. And his grandmother called me and asked me if I would represent him, and I agreed. And I went down to see this young man, and I started asking him questions about his case, about his circumstances. When I started talking to him, he wouldn't respond to anything I said, and I stayed there for a half hour trying to get him to answer my questions, and he wouldn't say anything. Then finally, after about 30 minutes of this going on, I put down my pen and I said, what's wrong? You've got to talk to me about what's happening here. If you don't talk to me, I can't help you. And slowly he began to reveal to me that during the last three nights that he had been placed in this adult facility, he had been assaulted and raped by other inmates in the, in the jail. And as he started talking about these things, he became hysterical. And I found myself for the next hour just trying to comfort this young boy who was dealing with this experience. Well, the disconnection that gave rise to this problem was part of the struggle. I represent a lot of folks who have given up hope. I work in communities where young kids are hopeless. They suffer from a profound absence of hope. I talk to kids 13 and 14 years old who tell me that they don't believe they're going to live past the age of 18. I go into the projects and I see seven and eight-year-old kids talking very excitedly about something and I'll think they'll talking, they're talking about school or cars or sports and I'll go close enough to hear what they're talking about and they won't be talking about any of those things. They'll be talking about guns. One will be saying to the other, man, you've got to get a nine millimeter that shoots this many rounds in this many seconds. And the other will say, no, that's not the kind of gun I want. I want something else. And you see this orientation that is so discouraging. The problems of young people in impoverished community, the problems of our criminal justice system, the problems of race, the problems of poverty, the problems that surround all of these issues are indeed real and are indeed vexing. But I really didn't come to just explain to you and to identify the issues that we are confronting. I really came to urge you to recognize there is a role for you in struggle. That's something that I've learned in the work that I've been doing. It's something that I think it's important as you go through your work here at Westmont College. You see, we need in this society, we need in this world, a great deal of what you have. Your ideas, your energy, your commitment, all of those things are what we desperately need. And you're learning about a lot of different things. You're learning things in sociology and psychology and business and economics and healthcare and a variety of areas. And you're getting ideas in your mind about how you might make our society better, how you might push us to be something that we're not. And I want to urge you to, to refine those ideas, to keep those ideas sharp, but I want to also urge you to recognize that the ideas you have in your mind are not enough to actually make a difference in struggle unless there's also some conviction in your heart. 
You see, because it's the conviction that will cause you to go places and do things when your mind tells you that you really shouldn't go there and that you really can't do them. And it's that conviction that is, is what the Lord can use to make you the kind of spirit, the kind of witness, the kind of presence that can change a situation and create hope. Now, Dr. Hesterness must have told this story when she was here, but I'm going to tell it again because I think it, it reflects what I'm trying to say. We were representing a man who had spent six years on death row in Alabama for a crime he had no involvement in. It was a horrible crime. It was a murder of a young woman in South Alabama, and the police couldn't solve it. Six, seven months had gone by, and there was a great deal of pressure on the local police to make an arrest. And our client, who was a 45-year-old black man, had no prior criminal record, became the target of the police because we believe uh, it was because he had had an, an affair with a young white woman in that community who was related to a police officer. Well, after seven months of not being able to solve the crime, the police arrested this man and charged him with the murder. Now, even though uh, at the time the murder took place, he was at home with about 30 other uh, people, people of color, uh, who were raising money for his sister's church, and he had all of these alibi witnesses, and there was absolutely no way he could have committed this crime, he was arrested. And he was actually placed on Alabama's death row before he went to trial. He spent 13 months awaiting trial on death row. It was a very unusual procedure to use against someone. He was tried. The trial lasted less than two days. He was convicted and sentenced to death. He then spent the next six years on Alabama's death row, hoping for relief, but experiencing execution after execution of other people on the row. Well, the case was interesting because it had an impact on the entire community, particularly the black community. The black community in South Alabama knew that Walter McMillan was innocent because they were there with him. And they kept saying to me every time I would go to that community, it would be so much easier if he had been out in the woods hunting by himself when this crime took place, because at least then we could entertain the possibility that he might be guilty. But because we were there with him and we were raising money for the church that day and we saw him there and we know that he could not have committed this crime, it's almost like we're being convicted too. We got involved in this case after he'd been sentenced to death and we started uncovering evidence of his innocence. It was actually pretty dramatic evidence. The witnesses who testified against him had made recorded statements acknowledging that their testimony was false and we were able to prove uh, that uh, police officers had seen him at his home raising money uh, for his sister's church at precisely the time the crime was committed some 11 miles away. And all of this evidence was coming together and we started having hearings where we were going to present this evidence to show to the court that he had to be released. And uh, when we would have these hearings, the entire black community would come to court, anxious to see some sign of hope, to know that there was something worth struggling for. Well, we had our first day of hearings. We started presenting our, uh, presenting our evidence, and it went very well. Everybody went home that night feeling excited, feeling hopeful about what had been accomplished uh, that day. Uh, we came back the second day, though, and they had changed the courtroom around. On the second day, they wouldn't let anybody into the courtroom when I got there. And I saw all these people from the black community sitting outside the courtroom. And I said, why aren't you going inside? And they said, well, they won't let us in yet. And I went over to the deputy sheriff and I asked him if I could go in. He said, you know, we're not letting people in yet. And I told him I was the lawyer and he got the sheriff and they finally agreed that I could go in. And I walked in. And between the first day of the hearings and the second day of the hearings, they had changed the courtroom around. They had placed this metal detector on the other side of the door that you had to walk through. And behind the metal detector there was this huge German Shepherd dog who had been positioned in the courtroom. 
Well, I went into the courtroom, and the courtroom was half-filled with people who had been brought in uh, by the prosecution to change the dynamic in the courtroom, and I was furious about what had happened. I complained, but I knew that not everybody from the black community would get to come to the hearing that day. And I went back out and explained it to the community leaders and expected them to be angry too, but they weren't. They said, that's okay. They said, that's all right. We'll just have some people be our representatives at today's hearing. And they quickly began to identify people who would be their eyes and ears. And they identified this older woman by the name of Ms. Williams, this older black woman who took such pride at being a representative. And I saw her clutch her shawl and fix her hat and gather her purse and proudly start walking toward the door to be a representative of the court, of the community that day. And I was inside the court when she finally got to the door and I saw her walking with such pride and dignity through the door, through the metal detector. But when she saw the dog, I saw her freeze. And she stood there, terrified. And she began to shake and you could see that she really wanted to keep walking but she just didn't have the the courage, the ability to do it. And I saw her in a very painful scene stand there and shake. Tears start streaming down her face. And finally, I saw her drop her head, uh, droop her shoulders, and run out the courtroom. Well, other people came into the courtroom. We had another good day of hearings. I'd forgotten all about the incident until I was going home that night. And there was Ms. Williams sitting outside the courthouse. And as I, was, as I was walking to my car, she walked up to me. She said, Mr. Stevenson, I feel so bad. She said, I let you down today. I let everybody down today, and I feel terrible about that. I said, Ms. Williams, it's all right. It's okay. You shouldn't feel bad. She said, no, no, no. I wanted to walk into that courtroom. I should have walked into that courtroom, but I just couldn't make myself do it, and I feel terrible about that. I said, Ms. Williams, it's all right. It's okay. She said, no, no, no. I wanted to walk into that courtroom. When I saw that dog, all I could think about was Selma in 1965. And she said, I remembered how we gathered at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965 to march toward Montgomery for our right to vote. And all I could think about was being chased by dogs on that day, and I couldn't make myself walk. And she walked away from me with tears in her eyes, and I couldn't console her. The next day, we had hearings again, and her sister came to me, and she told me that that night, when Ms. Williams got home, she didn't need anything. She went into her bedroom, she got on her knees, and she just started praying. And they said all night long they could hear her in her room praying, Lord, I can't be scared of no dog. I can't be scared of no dog. And the sister told me the next morning she got up and she called the ministers and she begged them not to let anybody into the courtroom until she got there. And the sister told me she got in the car and she started saying to herself from the house until the time they got to the courthouse, almost in a mantra, Lord, I ain't scared of no dog. I ain't scared of no dog. And when it came time to open the courtroom on this uh, next day of hearings, there was Ms. Williams sitting at the, standing at the front of the line, and you could hear her saying from even where I stood, I ain't scared of no dog. Lord, I ain't scared of no dog. And finally, they started letting people into the courtroom, and she walked through the metal detector, and she stopped in front of that dog, and she said in a very loud voice, I ain't scared of no dog. And she walked past the dog and sat down on the front row of that courtroom, and she said, Mr. Stevenson, I'm here. <laughs> at that point, I turned around, and I said, Ms. Williams, it's so good to see you. I turned around, started working on my papers, and I was busy preparing my papers, and I heard her say it again. She said, no, Mr. Stevenson, you didn't hear me. She said, I'm here. At this point, it was getting a little embarrassing, so I turned back around. And I said, oh, Ms. Williams, I do see you. It's great to see you here. A few minutes went by, and finally the judge walked into the courtroom, and everybody stood up, and then everybody sat back down. But when everybody else sat back down, Ms. Williams remained standing. And when the courtroom got real quiet and everybody turned to her to see what she was about to do, she said one last time in a very loud voice, she said, I'm here. And it became clear to me then that she wasn't saying, I'm physically present. She was saying, I may be old, I may be poor, I may be black, but I'm here because I've got this conviction. I've got this vision that compels me to stand up for justice.
I tell you that story because I believe to be witnesses for Christ, to be people who can make a difference in difficult and complex situations, we have to be willing to say, I'm here. I believe God is calling many of you to put yourself in a position where just saying I'm here can mean hope for people, can make a difference for people. There is a great privilege in serving people who are disadvantaged, in serving people who are in need. For one thing, it allows you to put your own burdens in perspective. I was representing somebody a month ago at a trial who had been on death row for 19 years and we were about to have a new trial. This is a wonderful man who's come to love the Lord. He always blesses me every time I go to visit him. He's always sharing me with me some poem he's written or some hymn or some scripture. And when they moved him to the courthouse to be tried, they, the, the, the jailers were very unhappy about having him back, and they started treating him very meanly, and they were making him clean the bathrooms with a little toothbrush, and they were keeping him shackled at both hands and feet and wrapped him with uh, chains anytime he moved anywhere. And uh, they would put the chains on too tight, and he would complain about how it was hurting him, and they would call him names, and they were really bothering him uh, from the time he'd gotten there. And I went to see him on this particular morning, and he came shuffling into uh, the visitation area with shackles on his feet, chained at the hand with a belt of chains wrapped around his waist, and the guard said something mean to him as he walked into the courtroom, uh, to the uh, visiting room. And I looked at him and I said, Jesse, how you doing? And this man, who always felt that it was his burden to pray for me, to uplift me, looked down for a while, and then he finally looked back up at me and he said, Brian, he said, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. No higher place that I've found. The Lord is planting my feet on higher ground. And standing there watching this man, seeing this man who had been condemned and spent the last 20 years on death row, shackled at the feet, shackled at the hands, talking about pressing on the upward way, planting his feet on higher ground, compelled me to recognize that I too have some obligation to press on. That is the gift, that is the joy in working in struggle, in finding yourself in struggle. You recognize that you must press on, and in pressing on that there is the liberty of Christ, the love of Christ, the joy of Christ. I hope that there are some of you who believe that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. If there are, I urge you to press on. I hope that there are some of you who believe that we must create redemption rather than revenge. We must find ways to, to show love rather than hatred. We must find ways to create healing for a society very much at conflict and torn from itself. If you do, I hope that you will press on. I'm going back to Montgomery, Alabama to continue doing the work that we are doing, trying to create hope in hopeless situations, but I'm doing it with this real assurance that there is a joy in serving the Lord even in these situations. One of the great things about being a Christian, about knowing that he does talk with us, that he does walk with us, that he does let us know that we're not alone and that we belong to him, is that when we make this struggle, we make it not just by ourselves. I've come to learn something very wonderful about struggle and about identity in struggle. And that is the effort, the tasks, the steps we make are sometimes the most important things we accomplish. Not the cases we win, not the changes we see, but the steps we make. 
In my church, when things get particularly difficult as they are for me right now in the work that we are doing in Alabama, we had this old saying, somebody would stand up and they'd start saying, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. And they'd say that because they'd recognize that in the face of struggle, as we put ourselves in the path of difficulty, we are empowered. And knowing that there is empowerment in that struggle gives us hope, gives us courage, and gives us faith to do the things that God calls us to do. I hope that some of you are hearing that message, and and I hope that you will share in that vision. I've come to learn that we don't walk by ourselves and that there really is joy. I've got to go back to Alabama and help my clients, not just because it's what the Lord has given to me, but because I literally hear the Lord's voice saying to me, come ye blessed of my Father. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in jail, you prisoned me. You visited me. And because I hear that, I must go. I hope you hear that too and the opportunities that exist for you, not only in your college experience, but with the lives that God has given you. You don't have to just work in the criminal justice system to make a difference. We see problems affecting the poor and the disadvantaged in the areas of health care, the elderly, homeless people, and institutions dealing with the complex issues surrounding employment and underemployment. All of these things compel us to consider whether we should be saying, I'm here. I hope you hear that voice because we are desperately in need of your witness, your challenge, your vision, your love. And even if you don't hear that voice, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll consider doing some of this anyway. And perhaps when you get to the end of your road, uh, you can say, Lord, uh, when were you hungry and we fed you? When were you thirsty and we gave you something to drink? When were you in prison and we visited you? And you can hear him say to you, so often as you did it unto these, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. It is that response, that comfort, that promise that can empower us. One last story before I sit down. I was in court not too long ago, and I was challenging what the judges and the people in this particular community were doing with regard to issues of race bias in the police department. And when I got to the courthouse, there was this older man who came, and when he saw me walking in there, he came up to me, and he was the janitor who worked there, and he embraced me. As soon as I walked in, he said, are you the lawyer? I said, yes, sir, I am. And he seemed to be so proud that uh, I was coming there to argue these motions. And he began to hug me. And he said, I'm going to call my wife and tell her I met you. And it was actually kind of embarrassing. But it was wonderful. I don't usually get greeted that way when I go into some of these courtrooms. And I went inside and I started arguing these motions. It was a very contentious hearing. There was a lot of conflict. The, The judge was mad because I was making these accusations. And the courtroom just started filling up with people who all seemed to be angry at me. And I was there by myself. And it was kind of an overwhelming... Uh, feeling, you know, these hearings are like weddings. You know, you have the bride side and the groom side, you know. Uh, at this particular event, there was uh, nobody on my side, bride or groom, and it, and it, and it kind of got sort of uh, tight in the courtroom, and everybody just kept packing in there, and there were police officers and court personnel and other lawyers just glaring at me, just to kind of incensed that I would be making these kinds of accusations, and I was shouting, the judge was shouting back, and every 20 minutes I would see this old, uh, this older black man peering through a little window in the door, looking at me with greater and greater concern on his face about what was happening. And every 20 minutes he would come by and you could just see the worried look on his face. And another 20 minutes would go by and he would come back through and look again. And finally, after about two hours when the courtroom was packed, I I saw this older man kind of open the door, uh, come inside and sit down right behind me on my side of the courtroom. About 10 minutes later, the judge said, we're going to take a break now. And everybody kind of got up and 
as soon as we took the break, a deputy sheriff from across the way came over and he stormed up to, to this uh, older man. He said, Jimmy, what are you doing in this courtroom? And at that point, uh, this man looked at me and he looked at that sheriff and he said, I came into this courtroom to tell this young man, uh, keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. Press on the upward way and you will find your joy. Well, I guess that's what I've come here to Westmont this morning to tell you. To keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. Press on the upward way and let the Lord plant your feet on higher ground. Thank you very much and God bless you all. Let's just be quiet for a moment. I feel like the Lord has given a very clear admonition and encouragement through him. And so as Diane sings, which I've just motioned for her to do, I would like you to just Ask yourself the question Brian asked. Have you heard a voice, the voice of Jesus, to in your own way and with your own abilities stand there and be present? So reflect on that. <laughs> 